Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, I don't know about you, but are you feeling 22? No, I'm 28. Oh, but the, we're on the 22nd episode, though, so you should be feeling <gasps> oh, 22. Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling 22. Yes. That's good. Is that your favorite T-Swift song, or which which one's your favorite? Uh, I don't know which my favorite favorite one is. There's a lot of good ones. Aren't you just like her whole catalog? There, there's a lot of good ones, you know? <laughs> Sorry to pick just one. Yeah. My favorite T-Swift song is Shake It Off. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Why is it your favorite? Because the haters are going to hate, 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 hate. They sure do hate, hate, hate. And you just, you just let them hate, but then you, you shake, shake it off, off you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. All right. So what are we talking about today? We're going to be talking about how we can get people to play flesh and blood, welcome them into the community, and build them competitive decks on a budget. So I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Tolarian Community College, one of the biggest Magic the Gathering YouTubers released a video over the past week basically saying flesh and blood's great like he's but he's prominently hosted it before but he was like very high on flesh and blood and saying like wizards of the coast doesn't care about the community anymore they're a soulless corporate giant that's charging a thousand dollars for proxy booster pack cards go play flesh and blood the community's great the cards are great the game is fun and the company actually gives a damn about the player base and that actually worked there's been a huge influx i've noticed on People in Reddit, uh, there was a couple new people at the game store on Monday. I bought a uh, dual deck, Dorinthia versus Reinhardt, to teach them how to play. And yeah, so a bunch of people are coming over. And believe it or not, people don't have infinite money just because they used to play Magic the Gathering. And I think the most common question I've been seeing on Reddit in all of the flesh and blood uh, subreddits is, how can I play this game? without having to spend a gajillion million trillion dollars. <laughs> so it's a valid question. That's what we're going to try to help with this week. Awesome. Okay. I, I wasn't aware. Uh, I knew the professor put out a video saying flesh and blood was great, but I didn't know. It makes sense that there's an influx of new players. He's a pretty uh, influential voice, but that's, that's real cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's always nice to have a growing community instead of one that's, disaffected by thousand dollar booster packs <laughs> yeah so the parameters for these deck lists that we ta- are going to talk about now were that they had to cost less than a hundred dollars um a hundred dollars is i think pretty reasonable for an intro deck to cost somebody compared to any other you know collectible card game you know if you look at magic the gathering arena or hearthstone or uh, i don't even Yu-Gi-Oh or pokemon $100 for a deck or just trying to get into those games for $100 is, is pretty rough, actually, most of the time. So mm-hmm. I think being able to just get into the game and have a deck that I think all three of these decks that we're going to talk about are perfectly viable for your local armory and can definitely compete with anything out there. I don't think they're necessarily always going to win 100% of the time. Obviously, they're not the most busted things around. But given that Flesh and Blood is already, you know, a skill intensive game as when Michael Hamilton has been proving by skillfully winning every tournament ever in existence so far. Uh, <laughs> at least it'll help people get in the door and playing competitive games at least. Yeah, makes sense. So where do you want to start? The first deck that 
I went to was Dorinthia. And the reason why I went to Dorinthia is because I knew Courage of Bladehold was a piece of equipment that was not very expensive. So obviously the most expensive equipment in the game right now, not even close, is Find All Spring Tunic. And I think it's at or above $200 somewhere. And that's always the biggest barrier to entry for players getting in because just dropping $200 on one card and that's that's it. You got one card. You still need 79 more. It's a long way to go. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, so any decks that can feasibly have chess pieces that are very good that don't necessarily need Find All Spring Tunic were going to be the top of my list to look at and Courage of Blade Hold only being $30. So this deck is $90 altogether and... Courage of Blade Hold is like 30 of that. So even if you wanted to skimp on Courage of Blade Hold, you could probably build this deck for like 60 bucks if you really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Cool. So we'll be posting links to all these decks, but I'll go ahead and read it out. The cards I have in here are Cadaverous Contraband, Coax of Commotion, Iron Song Response. Do you want to say oh. how many copies of each card? Oh, yeah, that's right. I probably should, huh? Okay. So I'll start with the equipment even. How about that? Okay. We have one Courage of Blade Hold, Gallantry Gold. Helm of the Sharp Eye, Nalrune Gloves, Nalrune Hood, Nalrune Robe, and Refraction Bolters, and the weapon is Dawnblade, which is nice because Dawnblade and Drinthia are both tokens, so they are free 99, which is nice, you know, not having to pay anything for those two cards right off the gate. Mm-hmm. And if you do go to order them off online, they'll probably be like 10 cents or something, but if you go to any store and ask people, someone should have them, or... uh it, it, sh- it shouldn't be hard to get them, basically. Yeah, and you, or you, you could just crack booster packs, and you'll get a whole bunch of other cards, and you'll have the tokens. But mm-hmm. I'm sure local game stores, if they have like token collections, if they hosted those Welcome to Wraith farewell drafts, I guess, at the beginning of the year, uh, they should still have tokens around somewhere in their GameStop. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actual cards in the deck, though, are three Cadaverous Contraband, three Coax Commotion, three Iron Song Response, three Out for Blood, Three Razor Reflex, three Route, three Scar for a Scar, three Sharpen Steel, three Sink Below, three Snatch, three Steel Blade Supremacy, three Stroke of Foresight, and three Warriors of Valor, all in red. Moving on to the yellows, there's three Iron Song Determination, three Run Through, three Singing Steel Blade, and three Warriors of Valor. And then finally in the blues, there are three Blade Flash, three Driving Blade, three Energy Potion, three Glint the Quicksilver, three Hit and Run, three last-ditch effort, and three warrior's valor. So if I'm a new player and I'm picking up your deck for the first time, just getting into flesh and blood, what kind of advice or how, how would I expect the games to play playing your deck? So Dorinthia is a pretty unique hero in the fact that she is not usually attacking with attack action cards most turns. She's just trying to pump up her weapon Dawnblade, and the real goal, what you're trying to accomplish every turn is to hit with Dawnblade two times in the same turn. In order to accomplish that, you need to give Dawnblade go again, but Dawnblade has to hit also in order to activate Dorinthia's ability, which is once per turn, when your weapon attack hits, you may attack an additional time with that weapon this turn. And that matters because if you read Dawnblade, it specifically says as this intro line when activating the ability once per turn. So if you give it go again, it doesn't hit, and Dorinthia's ability does not activate, you cannot attack with Dawnblade again because it is a once-per-turn action, and you will essentially just have a wasted action point. Okay. 
In order to mitigate that, there are some normal attacks like Snatch, Scar for a Scar, and Coax a Commotion. So they're just free four-powered attacks if your opponent blocks out your Dawn Blade, you don't have any other ways to attack with it, you still have that action point, you could still at least come up with one of these cheap alternative attacks in order to try to push through damage. Cool. Makes sense. And the reason why Dorinthia can, like, steal games and compete at a level is because every time you're trying to defend against a Dorinthia, your opponents are just put into a quagmire of just trying to play around all of your cards all of the time on every single Dawnblade attack, and it's really challenging for them to do. Uh, there's a lot of weird breakpoints that can happen, since all of Dorinthia's pumps usually pump for three, but some of them, like Singing Steel Blade, push it up to that awkward breakpoint of one, and then it allows you to tutor for your deck for any other plus three at that point, as well as, I think, the best attack reaction in the deck even though it's expensive, is Route, which allows you to put one of the cards that your opponent has defended with from their hand when triggering the reprise ability back into their hand. So if you attack with Dawnblade and they even overblock, they block with two, three blocks. If you have the Route attack reaction, you then push your attack up to six, and they now only have one card defending for three, and your Dawnblade's getting through, which is awesome. Yeah, it's a powerful effect. Do you have any critiques of this intro list? Any noticeable commons that you think or cheap cards that could potentially be inserted into it? The only card I would really look at that you didn't, that I don't think was in your deck is Flock of the Featherwalkers. It's a card that I think can be pretty strong in Dorinthia for in the same spot that like Coax and Snatch are where they block the sword when it already had go again. So you don't get to, uh, you don't trigger Dorinthia's ability to be able to attack again. You can play Flock of the Featherwalkers at the end, reveal a zero or a one cost card, put that card in Arsenal, and a Flock will generate you a Quicken token, so you are guaranteed to have go again on your next turn without having to play a card to get it. Yeah, it's definitely a solid inclusion, and if you want to cut any of the attacks for Flock of the Featherwalkers, I think they're all pretty interchangeable. I just went with the zero cost just because they're the most flexible usually. Mm-hmm. And then as far as looking into upgrading this deck, there are some somewhat expensive cards that uh, I had to leave out, unfortunately. Spoils of War, which is a Majestic from Crucible of War, which just gives your next attack go again and plus two, next weapon attack plus two and go again. And whenever it hits, you create two Copper Tokens this turn. The Copper Tokens really don't matter for uh, Dorinthia, but it's just an efficient way to just make sure your Domblade is definitely going to at least have go again, because the the rare from Welcome to Wraith, Warrior's Valor, requires the weapon attack to hit in order to have go again. So if your opponent full blocks after you played a Warrior's Valor, you don't have go again because you have not satisfied the requirement to have hit with the weapon for Warrior's Valor. <laughs> and then the big expensive card, I think this card's like $20, is Glistening Steel Blade. And the reason why this card's $20 at the moment is because you can only get it in the Dorinthia versus Reinar dual deck. And it is a yellow card that blocks for three, uh, costs one, and it reads, give your next Dawnblade attack go again. And whenever a weapon attack you control hits this turn, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. So it's just as threatening to pile up a bunch of counters on Dawnblade really quickly and at least definitely give it go again. So it's just a very powerful card. And it's only in this one limited product, and that's why it is very expensive. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's crazy how much that card costs. Yeah, even some of the commons or just regular cards from it are like two to three dollars a piece. And so that added a decent chunk to the deck cost, but it, they st- it still was able to keep it pretty reasonable overall. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips about Dorinthia before we move on to our next list? I would definitely recommend Dorinthia as a pretty good starting point. I think like the play pattern of you have a bunch of cards that block for three, so you to choose whether you want to defend with them or attack with them is very good for newer players. And I think like there's some clear upgrade paths to make the deck better and improve on it and and as you're like as you're willing to spend more and more money in the game i think i think durante is a pretty good starting point i guess i don't know if i have any specific tips for playing it though durante hasn't been high on your list of heroes to test out for worlds i imagine no i was a little bit interested in a while but you spent some time working on her and i was kind of like that's good enough for me i don't need to play her myself if you're working on her and didn't sound too promising so i kind of let her fall by the wayside yeah, it's just uh, one of the issues with the deck is there's consistency where you need to always have, you know, ideally one or one or at most two blues in your hand and then these powerful effects that you're then threatening to push damage through. And ideally, they're going to be attack reactions to make it harder for your opponent to play through. But the attack reactions also usually cost more resources or require your opponent to block initially at first also to get their full value out of them so it just gets pretty hard to make sure she's consistently doing what she needs to be doing on a turn by turn cycle because once Stoneblade doesn't hit on a turn cycle you just lose all the progress that you've made off of your previous turns you don't you don't get to keep those counters anymore and that can be pretty devastating for her in a long game i guess i do have one last question for you before we move on Mm-hmm. So in Classic Instructed, you usually present a deck of 60 cards. There's 72 cards in your list. What kind of, which cards are you looking to cut or which cards are like more sideboardy cards that you don't default to playing? Um, so in blue, I would definitely say Energy Potion is really only a card that you want to be playing against the wizards like Icelander or I guess Ice Lexi, where you're going to be expecting a lot of Frostbites and you're going to want resources just in order to power through that disruption at just sitting on the battlefield available to use whenever you need it. And then also in blue, there's last ditch effort. And that's a card that really only works when you have no other, well, it's a card you really only want to be casting when you have no cards left in your deck, because it says if there's no cards in your deck, it gets plus three power and go again. So Mostly what it's there for is just to be a blue block three, but against the decks that want to go super, super, super long, it's just kind of an extra way to try to have some extra push to get across the finish line at the very end of the game. Mm-hmm. And then in red, uh, Sink Below is not a card you want to be playing 100% of the time. Look to bring it in against like Phi uh, in particular, now that Phi has all these awkward four power breakpoints and... I don't know that I would always play Coax of Commotion, just because since it's a symmetrical effect, you don't want to be giving your more aggressively slanted opponents the... The Quicken Token. Quicken Token, <laughs> because that'll allow their attacks to have go again. You obviously don't want to be giving them cards, and the game life mode is just kind of whatever as well. So it's not a card I would be playing 100% of the time either, mostly against, once again, the more controlling decks or decks that are looking to try to block out 
Dawnblade on the first go around, anyways. Mm, makes sense. And then equipment wise, you just play the Null Rune pieces of equipment against. You play all three against the Wizard, Icelander, or Kano, and you would probably play Null Rune gloves against Briar and Viscerai. Actually, Null Rune hood in this list because Helm of the Sharp Eye is not amazing, but so Courage of Blade Hold and Refraction Bolters are probably better. So in this list, actually. I would play Nolrun Hood against Briar and Viscerai. Okay, awesome. I think that answers everything I was thinking, or everything I was wondering. Well, moving on to our next list then. Speaking, I think I brought up the aggressively slanted decks like Phi, and Phi is the next list that I went to, because the Phi has an incredibly powerful, majestic headpiece that he can utilize called Mask of the Pouncing Lynx. Because Mask of the Pouncing Lynx is only about five or six dollars, and it's a piece of equipment that is extremely above rate. And when I say above rate, it's because normally most pieces of equipment in this game usually give you like one to two either like resources or uh, damage mitigation or damage boost. That's usually like what you're usually, I guess two to three. Two to three is usually what you're expecting to get out of a piece of equipment as far as like resource or damage pumping or blocking or something like that. And most of the time it's closer to that two number. But Mask of the Pouncing Links uh, has the potential to just turn into an extra six damage at the end of a chain link by going and tutoring up Lava Burst. So Lava Burst is a card that has rupture, which means if it's played at chain link four or higher, it has plus three. So if you have something that's boosting all of your attacks for the turn, or I guess normally it's six because of Tiger Stripe Shuka, but still turning into a five damage piece of equipment without Tiger Stripe Shuka, the legendary, still very good. Um, but just, and also being able to threaten that whenever one of your attacks hit and you feel like you're able to follow through off a chain is just very threatening for your opponent to always have to constantly fear at the end of a chain after one of your attacks hits. Then at the chest, Phi was in a deck that necessarily needed Findel Spring Tunic because since he's so aggressively slanted, it was rare for him to get more than two resources out of it anyways. So there's a common piece of equipment out of those same Ryan Arbor Strenthia dual decks called Blossom of Spring, which is just a zero block piece of equipment that just allows you to sacrifice it on your turn. It's an action with go again to just gain one resource. So if you just need that extra floating resource, it's there for you. Warning though is that activating it will break your chain links for rupture. So if you need to use it for something, I would, you obviously want to activate it before you start attacking for the turn. Uh, but with that, I'll go into the actual equipment list itself. There is one Blossom of Spring, one Bracers of Belief, one Mask of the Pouncing Links, Null Rune Gloves, Null Rune Hood, Snapdragon Scalers, Tie Flippers, and the weapon is Searing Ember Blade. Going on to the reds, there are three Ancestral Empowerment, three Belittle, three Blaze Headlong, three Brand with Cinderclaw, three Breaking Point, three Flame Call Awakening, three Lava Burst, three Lava Vein Loyalty, one Minnowism, three Mounting Anger, three Phoenix Flame, three Phoenix Form, three Rise from the Ashes, three Rising Resentment, three Ronin Renegade, three Sink Below, three Snatch, two Soaring Strike, three Spreading Flames, and three Uprising. At yellow, there is one Salt the Wound, and then at blue, there are three Brand of Cinderclaw, three Energy Potion, three Lava Vein Loyalty, one Blue Minnowism, two Rise from the Ashes, two Rising Resentment. So as you can see, not a lot of blues in the deck overall, but that's because most of your reds are 
zero cost and one cost at most. So most of what you're doing on your turn by turn basis is just free. And you really are just trying to use the blues to attack with your weapon and maybe one of the one cost attacks. Yeah, one thing about Phi is you usually don't want to draw more than one blue in a hand. It's really hard to take advantage of a second blue, and a lot of the cards don't block the best. So a lot of the blues that you are playing only block for two. So if you drew two blues that block for two, it'd be pretty hard to get value out of them if you if you played too many. Yeah, and additionally, you're playing three Belittle, which is a card that can just go and find you a blue if you don't naturally have one. So that's kind of the best use for Blossom of Spring is, let's say you have an amazing hand, but you don't have a blue on it for all the resources you need to cast on the turn. Sacrificing Blossom of Spring, playing a belittle, and then tutoring up a blue minnowism to pitch for the turn is a really great way to fix the hand and just make your slightly awkward hands be able to function and present a lot of damage. Yeah, that makes sense. So Phi is a deck we've been seeing a lot in the competitive metagame recently, where it's one of it's considered one of the better decks. What kind of differences in game plan do you have from a regular Phi, where the regular Phi is just looking to play three, four card hands as often as possible and put out a lot of damage? I see there's some inclusions in your deck like Phoenix Form and Rise from the Ashes that aren't super common and are more in our the Phi decks we've seen. So what what are these cards trying to do? So they're just trying to replace arguably the best card in Phi when you can spend the little bit more money, which is Art of War. And Art of War is just a very powerful instant that allows you to pay one. And then the modes that it has four modes, but usually Phi is just looking to banish a card from his hand and then draw two new cards. So if you have two blues, you're able to, you know, filter one of those blues away and then draw two new cards and then give all of your attacks for the turn that you're presenting plus one plus one so obviously for a hero that's trying to play as many attacks as possible pumping them all by one power is extremely powerful and that's why i included the card uprising it only buffs draconic attacks on the chain but it's still worth it in the deck as the vast majority of attacks in this deck are draconic and you can't surprise your opponent with it since Art of War is an instant. You can lead with an attack and then play the Art of War to just trick them and get that one point of damage across, whereas your opponent's going to know that attack's getting buffed as it's declared with Uprising. Makes sense. One other advantage to Uprising is it also blocks for three and hands where you're looking to play a smaller hand because maybe you have an important on hit to block. You can block with Uprising, whereas for an Art of War, you, it can't block, so usually you're kind of priced into either trying to keep a reasonable sized hand to play it or pitching it for resources or arsenaling it. So Uprising does have that going for it. Yeah, and Phi in its final form, <laughs> I guess what you could say, <laughs> final. has uh, equipment that is capable of blocking very nicely in between uh, the chest piece, flamescale furnace, that's three block. You get on that one piece of chest piece equipment if you're looking to block heavily in a match. And then Tiger Stripe Shuko is just another blade, another piece of equipment with blade break that blocks for two, but is usually giving you extra points of damage throughout the game as well by buffing the second attack with base power two. Is it one or less or two or less? One or less, right? Yeah. It's two or, two or less. Two or less? Oh, mm-hmm. oh yeah. That's why it, it works, works with, with lava, uh, burst. lava Burst. Okay. With base attack two or less uh, plus one. 
So it's a very good piece of equipment, but it's also a very expensive piece of equipment. And if you'd like to own a very, very, very piece of uh version of that card. I do have a gold cold foil. I will sell to any of our listeners for the low, low cost of $3,000. So if you are looking for the opposite of a budget deck and a bling deck, <laughs> get in contact with us. MNR cast on Twitter. Oh yeah, we made a Twitter. I didn't even announce that. We have oh, a yeah. Twitter now. Go follow us on Twitter, www.twitter.com. And then look up Manor Podcast, MNR. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you don't have any other final thoughts on Fi? So you mentioned Art of War. You mentioned some of the equipment. Are there any other expensive attacks or cards that you'd want to play in the deck if budget wasn't a factor? Any other upgrades that you'd make? Are you uh, alluding to my uh, three breaking points? I I am. I am. <laughs> you I know, think- it's just budget Command and Conquer. Yeah. So Command and Conquer is... What, probably the most expensive action in the game right now. Yeah, it's the most expensive non-piece of equipment card, usually between 90 to... Other than Fables. Fables don't count. Nobody plays Fables. Okay. It's the right most It's the most expensive non-legendary, non-Fabled card in the game. Yeah, yeah. I said action, and then I forgot about uh, the locations are also actions. Yeah, library. Oh, right. It's, not, it's down to $75. And you get the white-bordered one for $67 if you are really desperate. Oh, so are our library and Corsham both cheaper than Command & Conquer now? That's pretty funny, if that's true. Uh, it is the same price. It's like, it's, oh, it's $79. <laughs> oh, no, Corsham's $95. Interesting. Okay. okay. And okay, you go, Tales of Aria. Breaking Point's definitely a fine card. It's just Command & Conquer is a little bit more flexible in that you don't need the Rupture effect to destroy an arsenal. And it also shuts down defense reactions, which is occasionally relevant as well. Yeah, I would really only be looking to bring this card again against Rangers like uh, Lexi or Azalea if it's played at your local meta. Or, yeah, that's I, I really only look to bring it in there. But <laughs> I was reaching for cards at the end, and Breaking Point or was my 77th through 80th card. So... Breaking points, a sideboard card, and then you mentioned snatch and energy, or not snatch, sorry, sink below an energy potion into Renthia or sideboard cards. Is that, is that also kind of the case here where you're not playing those in most matchups? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Michael, the time is now. The time is now. Is it time to talk about our last deck of the day? Yeah, your, your Lexi concoction. So uh, my last deck, or our last deck, is a version of Lightning Lexi that uses death dealer as its weapon the goal of this deck is to combine death dealer with snapshot which has a pretty weird interaction where when you attack with snapshot and lightning fuse it you may activate the abilities of bows you control an additional time as though they were an instant since instants don't take your action point you can attack with snapshot and then your death dealer you can instant speed activate it by paying one and loading an arrow face up into your arsenal you draw a card and then you get go again and normally Normally, when you activate Death Dealer, you're activating as an action. So you're spending an action point, and then the go again will give you an action point back. So it breaks even in action points. But with the interaction with Snapshot, when you use Death Dealer, you get your you use it as an instant. So it doesn't cost an action point to use it, but go again still gives you an action point when it resolves. So you go plus one action point back. So even if the Snapshot itself doesn't have go again when you're attacking with it, reloading the Death Dealer will give you back your action point. And that's kind of the main interaction this deck's trying to take advantage of. I'll go ahead and read through the deck now. Um, the hero's Lexi Livewire, and the weapons is Death Dealer, and the rest of the equipment is Blossom of Spring, 
Bullseye Bracer, Coronet Peak, Perch Grapplers, Snapdragon Scalers, Northern Hood, and Northern Robe. Perch Grapplers and Snapdragon Scalers, uh, you usually use Snapdragon Scalers, but if your opponent has a lot of on-hits you want to block, having Perch Grapplers, the extra two block on it, is nice to have there. And then Coronet Peak is kind of expensive, but the deck frequently ends its turn with an action point left over, and sometimes off your draw from death dealer you draw an extra blue and it's really nice to have coronet peak to be able to trade your blue for an extra card from your opponent's hand instead of having to arsenal a blue and that's about it for equipment mentions um blossom of spring is here as a kind of budget version of tunic but again like similar to what roger was saying with the phylist the games where you're playing this deck don't go very long you're not looking to block a lot and your opponent's if your opponent's blocking a lot, then you're just getting to do your thing and you're in a pretty good spot anyway for the most part. And Blossom of Spring does have the advantage over Tunic where sometimes you can use it in the first two turns of the game, which comes up a reasonable amount where you just want to sacrifice your Blossom of Spring to activate your Death Dealer load and hopefully draw a better resource card than what you have in your hand. Um, I also separated out the sideboard from the quote-unquote main board. It's not something I usually do in building decks and I usually kind of look at it as more of a whole package, but... In this case, I think it is more useful to do it this way as it's we're looking to make decks that are like kind of an intro point for new players. So I'm gonna read what I consider like the main 60 and then I'll read the sideboard separately. So Okay. Go for it. For Reds. Way to call me out. I feel called out now. <laughs> Sorry. I, I Roger just doesn't care about our listeners. He didn't break out the sideboard. Well you he made just, you made two decks. You did twice as much work as me. <laughs> yeah, but you did it right. Is it better to do two, twice the amount of bad work or one really good job, Michael? Uh, it depends on the situation. <laughs> if if the if the listeners don't like Lexi, then it's better to have more options, right? Who doesn't like Lexi? Look at her. She's she's pretty cool. Livewire. So at red, there's three dazzling crescendo, three electrify, three entwine lightning, three flock of the feather walkers, three frazzle, three heaven's claws, three lightning press, three lightning surge, one pulse of volt haven, three razor reflex, three snapshot. Three snatch and three weave lighting. At yellow, there's three lighted up and three snapshot. And at blue, there's three electrify, three flock of the feather walkers, two frazzle, three heaven's claws, three snapshot, three weave lightning. So the main things you're trying to do with the deck is, like I said, the snapshot death dealer interaction. And then this is a deck that has a lot of action points and is pretty good at getting go again just for through random ways. So to capitalize on that, we're playing Flock of the Feather Walkers, which if you get Flock go again, then it'll give your next attack go again. So you can keep kind of chaining these go again effects. And then uh, you can just keep spending more and more cards from your hand. Since you don't really know what you're going to draw off your Death Dealer activation that you do at this early, early in most turns, it is nice to have a lot of attacks that just naturally have go again because then you don't end up in a weird spot where you have two finishers and no sources of go again that you didn't really have a plan for oh and then sorry for the sideboard the sideboard cards are three battering bolt red three take cover red two yellow or three yellow finals fighting spirit and three energy potions the battering bolts and finals fighting spirits are mostly there for dromai because they have six power and can pop things take cover is there when you need to block on hits similar to the sink blows and rogers list you mostly board them in when you want a defense reaction that blocks for four and then the three energy potions are for the ice heroes where you want both a higher blue count and you want this permanent in play that you can sacrifice for two resources when you need it makes a lot of sense although 
No, how much does this, how much did this deck cost when you totaled it all up? It was around $60 for everything. The most expensive piece is Coronet Peak at around $25, and then Perch Grapplers is about $10. If you are looking to save a little bit of money, Perch Grapplers is definitely a card you don't need, and you can just rely on Snapdragon Scalers, but having that flexibility when you want the extra two block is pretty nice. I would almost recommend that instead of Coronet Peak, they just play, I don't know, Iron Rot Helmet and play get, spend that $20 for on three three of a kind. Three of a kind doesn't work exceptionally well in this deck because so many of your attack actions you're just looking to play from hand and you can't really reload very well. But it's so good. You get to draw three cards. And then... Oh, you can play that other range. You can play... But also to help mitigate that, though, you can play the common ranger helmet that just lets you put a card from your hand... Into your arsenal. Into your arsenal, yeah. Yeah, If I, I think I think Coronet Peak is pretty good in the deck because of the action point thing, but if... If you are looking to save money, I think replacing Coronet Peak with, uh, what's the ranger head called? Hunter's Hood? Honing Hood. Honing Hood. I went to the Tales of Aria release page. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you you could definitely play Honing Hood over Coronet Peak. If you're looking to make upgrades to the deck, the biggest things that I would look at for upgrades would be three copies of Enlightened Strike. Enlightened Strike's one of the best attacks in the game right now, and probably will be forever it really, really benefits a lot from getting go again from abilities like Lexi's ability to flip up the lightning card and give the next attack go again and uh, quicken tokens from the flock of the feather walkers and also razor reflex. Uh, giving it go again means you can choose either the plus two mode or you can choose the draw a card mode, which is probably the best mode, choosing draw a card and then having go again naturally built in lets you use that card that you draw because you'll have an extra action point. And then Art of War is also a very strong inclusion in the deck if you can afford it or swing it it is around 40 dollars a copy i think but being able to buff all your attacks for the turn when you're looking to play three to four attacks each turn is very powerful you know it's been a long time and i've come a long way and i I think i want to pull back on my recommendation on buying three of a kinds and that's because the more i thought about it the most common play pattern with that card was at the end of the game you would block with three cards use your tuna counter to play three of a kind and then boom you have a three card hand off of just out of nowhere off of just one resource off of tunic mm-hmm. and if you don't have find all spring tunic you cannot make that play so the card is uh not as useful in that situation <laughs> yeah that makes sense and again, in these like more aggressive lightning versions of Lexi, Tunic's not nearly as important as it is in the more mid-range ice versions that are looking to slow the game down. This this deck's really just looking to race, and it's if you're against anything aggressive, you're probably not going to get two counters out of that Tunic anyway. And the flexibility of Blossom of Spring to be able to use it on turn one or turn two is very nice. Yeah. That said, if you're looking for a big upgrade, Tunic is a reasonable card to look at, especially for the slower <laughs> matchups. <laughs> Would you... Well, I, I think I would recommend that most players just bite the bullet and get Tunic if they, or like before buying any other like upgrades to things, I would recommend they just save up and buy Find All Spring Tunic since it just goes into the most amount of decks. It's just one of the best pieces of equipment in the game and you'll get the most use out of it mm-hmm. out of any other card that you'll buy. Because even if we're looking at spending a hundred dollars or so for a new horizon in order to put two cards in your arsenal in like Lexi, you're halfway to a tunic, and I would still. And you, once you spend the hundred dollars on New Horizon, that's it. You can only use it in Ranger decks. Whereas if you had a Final Spring tunic, you could use it in 
every deck. So just something to consider when making upgrades as well as what versatility you can get out of the cards. So prioritize the cards that go into like the most amount of decks, like Enlightened Strike or Art of War as well, or, you know, cards that are just generically good and slot into a lot of decks. That, that makes the upgrades for this deck pretty nice and that the three most important things to get to upgrade from the 50 to $60 that it costs initially are Art of War and Lion Strike and Find a Spring Tunic. As those are all cards that are, like you said, good in a lot of decks and will likely see play forever. Until they make Super Find Elspring Spring Tunic that gives you three resources every turn for free. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Power creep. Halluvian Gonzalez is pretty... Feels power crept in the wizard mirrors, so <laughs> just free resources every turn, yeah. Yeah, it's just like infinite free resources for once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I think that's about it for the Lexi deck, unless you have any questions about it. No, uh, I think it's pretty straightforward. I think it's a very powerful deck as well, and I could definitely see it doing good things. There are some decks I want to call it as like some honorable mentions that I got real close to on the budget attempt. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is Viscerai. And, um, I basically got like 90% of the way through on building a budget Viscerai until I hit Swarming Gloom Veils and Revel in Runebloods, the Majestics from Everfest. They're just so integral to his game plan and they're the most powerful cards in his deck and they're like 15 to 25 dollars a piece so if it weren't for those six cards he'd be pretty easy to build because he has a pretty good common piece of uh equipment called aether iron weave which is just a battle worn room blade chest that is an action destroy aether and iron weave gain two resources activate this ability only if you played an attack and not attack action in the uh card this turn go again so you get the block out of it, you get the resources after you played the attack and the non-attack, and you get two of them, so it's just quite a good piece of common equipment. So it, like I said at the start, any time I don't have to play Find Old Spring Tunic necessarily, those are the decks I was leaning towards the most. That makes sense. And then there's the hero that is laughably impossible to build on a budget, and that's Oldheim. <laughs> Oldheim is so expensive. Yeah... Yeah, I mean, I think you could build a reasonable Oldheim deck for the cost of most classic constructed decks, but the optimal builds of Oldheim are just like probably the most expensive deck in the game. Like, I was like, well, maybe we don't even have to play Winner's Whale and a Shield because the Shields are all like $100. Like, maybe we can get away with Anathos. And I'm like, okay, what are we playing? And I'm like, oh yeah, there's Crown of Seeds. Oh, wait, no, that card's a million dollars. And I'm like, hmm. And you just find that like a like cranial crush, this random blue block three that's like a fine card is just like five dollars a piece because it's a majestic from Welcome to Wraith. And there's just like all these weird little cards that are all worth like five to fifteen dollars. There's very few cards that are like cheap in the deck, which was uh puts it as I think easily the most expensive and hardest to build deck in class constructed. So stay away from old time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Agreed. And then there's some heroes that I think could also be built on the cheap, like uh, Katsu or... Yeah, I think all of the Welcome to Wraith heroes you could probably get to at a reasonable point. Bravo Bravo's has hard. a little bit of the old time problems, but I don't think it's as bad. Yeah, Tectonic Planning's like in the 30s, so that's his most uh, commonly played chess piece, so that's not bad. I think you could easily do like 
Bravo for like between a hundred and a hundred fifty dollars. It's just getting them under that hundred dollar range was was difficult. Mm-hmm. And then Reinar is pretty cheap because no one plays Reinar, so most of the cards are pretty cheap. I don't think Reinar is that cheap. Really? Weirdly, uh, I think he has some like just like a handful of cards that are just weirdly expensive. I don't know. I didn't actually try to build a Reinar deck, but. Oh, he's a deck that I think he's a deck that needs find all spring tunic. Uh, you have the one chess piece that you get to roll a dice yeah. and you get some random amount of resources. It's like bark bone strapping is a pretty reasonable replacement for tunic. It's like long term, you'd probably want the tunic, but I don't think you're like in that better shape if you're on bark bone strapping. That's fair. Maybe I maybe he's not expensive. I just my intuition just made it look like uh, I wasn't interested in him, but. Maybe there's ways to build them on a budget if you're really interested in playing a brute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only the only card that I would expect to be kind of expensive is Swing Big because it's from Majestic from Everfest and it's around seven dollars a pop. Swing Big, and then the equipment, and then most of the other cards I think are reasonably priced, like pretty cheap. But yeah, I don't know if you want to play Reinar, then it's probably an option. Oh yeah, Skeps and Leather is only like forty five dollars. Okay, I thought I thought they were still like. 70 to 100 dollars but yeah they've come down yeah honestly surprised they're more than tectonic plating but that's probably because of blitz yeah well i think that about wraps us up though uh for budget decks michael any closing thoughts um i was thinking about if i wanted to throw any tips in for building your own budget decks but i think if you want more help on deck building check out our last episode on deck building in general and fab and you can apply look at that get them Hit them for the twofer. I like it. <laughs> you can apply a lot of that to uh, building on a budget. You just have a few cards that are kind of outside the price range that you don't really get to look at. But other than that, all the lessons from that episode should apply here. So yeah, the twofer. <laughs> I like it. I like it. What about you? Any closing thoughts? Uh, oh, uh, for managing collections and stuff like that, if you can, since a lot of the cards are pretty siloed. It makes it pretty easy to split a collection with a good friend. So let's say one of you goes in on like guardian cards and the other one goes in on warrior cards or each of you just pick a class and then, you know, you get tired of playing that particular hero. It's pretty easy then just to be like, well, you know, I'm not playing old time anymore. So I just have all my old time cards sitting here. So yeah, it's cool if you borrow them. That was kind of how Michael and I managed a collection when we were first starting is, uh, to be fair, I just bought everything. <laughs> You just let me borrow a bunch of stuff, whatever you weren't using. And but it was easy to do in this game because we very rarely wanted to play the same hero. So, and I wanted to own the, the collection anyways, just to make sure I could always play whatever I wanted to. So it was pretty easy to just be like, Hey, you know, I'm not using any of these old time cards. I got to go play Luminescence and Bolton. So you can use all these crappy old time cards I don't need right now, Michael. It's fine. <laughs> I do remember that. Good times. Mm-hmm. But that uh, about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thanks for listening to everybody. And when you're playing Flesh and Blood on a budget or on a yacht, either way, always remember, mind your manners. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm.